Hello, this is Terence McNally. Whether trying to influence government involvement in foreign wars or fight for social justice or a meaningful response to climate change, effective organizing is crucial. Here's my 2012 conversation with Marshall Gans, who dropped out of Harvard in 1964 to participate in Freedom Summer, worked for years as one of the lead organizers for United Farm Workers, and helped devise the grassroots model for Obama's 2008 campaign. Now a lecturer in public policy at Harvard, I can say without reservation, we need to learn from him. You can find more at marshallgans.com. M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, Marshall, Gans, G-A-N-Z, all one word, marshallgans.com. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Pacifica Radio and Free Forum. At some point during the first year of the Obama administration, someone suggested that they interview today's guest, Marshall Gans. Gans had been lead organizer for the ground troops in Obama's 2008 campaign, Camp Obama trainings, and the combination of grassroots and net roots that mobilized millions was a crucial component in that campaign's historic result. But it was soon evident uh, that President Obama had little interest in keeping those millions involved in any meaningful way. I didn't interview Gans at that point, but as the Occupy 99% movement evolves beyond encampments and as Obama launches his 2012 campaign, I turned to the longtime organizer turned Harvard lecturer for his insight, for lessons learned, and for guidance in the year ahead. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative, provocative approaches to business, environment, health, science, politics, media, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. In 1964, a year before graduating from Harvard College, Marshall Gans left to volunteer as a civil rights organizer in Mississippi. In 1965, he joined Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers, where he worked for the next 16 years. In 1991, he returned to Harvard College and completed his undergraduate degree and got his Ph.D. He now teaches there. As I said, Gans helped devise the grassroots organizing model for Obama's 2008 campaign and is the author of Why David Sometimes Wins, Leadership, Organization, and Strategy in the California Farm Worker Movement, Welcome, Marshall Gans, to Pacifica Radio and Free Forum. Thanks, Terrence. Um, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. So could you briefly talk about your path to the work you do today? And, and you can take a few moments because I feel that the personal and the, you know, and, and, the, and the strategic all weave together. Feel free to cite mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Well, I, I grew up in Bakersfield, um, uh, I don't have to, for your audience, I don't have to say California. Elsewhere, I do. Right. Uh, I grew up in Bakersfield, where my father was a rabbi, my mother was a teacher, and came uh, uh, here to Harvard uh, when graduating Bakersfield High School in 1960, uh, and uh, partly because my mission was to get about as far from Bakersfield, no offense, as I could. Um, who knew, right? Found a world, uh, yeah, who knew you're, you know, that, that you'd return, yeah. Yeah, no, and I, you know, it was a world that was both uh, very intimidating, very exciting, uh, but it, uh, I mean, I'd never encountered elitism on this on this scale, 
but it opened up the world. It was the year John Kennedy was elected president. It was very. He came here to the yard shortly after his election, and we had a sense of being kind of a, you know, a part of a new generation of leadership. Actually, yeah, it would not unlike the experience of some of the millennial generation, especially during the last uh, two or three years. Uh, for me, it led to getting involved in civil rights work, and I, I got involved, I think, uh, because uh, for three reasons. Uh, my father had been a chaplain in the American Army. Uh, after the Second World War, we lived with him in Germany for three years uh, when they brought dependents, and uh, as a child, I met survivors of the Holocaust who, who'd, whose lives had been shattered by that, uh, by that experience. We're looking for hope somewhere, and and uh, but my parents interpreted the Holocaust to me not as being simply uh, about anti-Semitism, but about racism with the simple understanding that racism kills. And, of course, that's what civil rights was challenging. Uh, I grew up as a rabbi's kid on Passover seders, and, of course, every year they'd tell the story of the journey from Exodus, uh, the Exodus story from journey from slavery to freedom. And there's a part they point at the kids and say, you were slaves in Egypt, and I was always puzzled by that till I realized that it meant the story wasn't the property of any one people, time, or place, but is in fact told every generation, and the civil rights movement was telling that story in my generation. And, of course, it was a movement of young people. I mean, Dr. King was 25 when he led the bus boycotts, and people doing the <clears throat> sit-ins and freedom rides were my peers, and it was challenging for my peers uh, to be engaged and, and me not. Walter Brueggemann, a Protestant theologian, wrote uh, a book called The Prophetic Imagination, where he... He says transformational vision occurs at the intersection of two things, criticality and hope, and, and a clear idea of the world's pain, but also of its need, of its possibilities. And young people come of age with a critical eye and a hopeful heart, almost of necessity. And so for my generation, that's what civil rights was about. And I, so I left and went to Mississippi, and there I got introduced to race, power, and politics in America. That was where my real education began about the difference between works of charity and works of justice and the significance of uh, of uh, power uh, and and the fact that unless people who needed change also became the authors of that change it wouldn't be real uh, and so I came away with an understanding of the relationship of leadership and community uh, and power that was at the heart of what organizing was about for me and came back to Bakersfield where I'd grown up in the middle of the farm worker world but never seen it. Um, it's as if I had to go to Mississippi and get what we called uh, Mississippi eyes to come back and see a community of color in California, not unlike the South, also without voting rights, also without labor rights. And, of course, California has its own rich history of racial segregation going back to the Chinese at the turn of the century. And And so it turned out Mississippi was an example of America rather than an exception. Mm -hmm. So I began working with Caesar and did that for the next 16 years and up till 81 and then another 10 years of union issue and electoral work, mostly in California. But then I found I was feeling stuck. It was like, you know, I'd, I'd you know, somehow Reagan was president and, uh, and uh, it felt like I just needed to find a way to go deeper and broader to what I'd been doing and by by happenstance, was invited to my 25th reunion at Harvard at that point. And I'd never been to a reunion. I was surprised they invited me because uh, I never graduated. <laughs> right. Uh, occasionally, their dropouts do pretty well, though. Uh, unlike me, that guy up in Seattle did a whole lot better. But 
I, uh, I, for some reason, it, it connected, and I came, and it was like running into a, a 20-year-old version of me, and we had a conversation, how's it going, and said, I've got to find a way to go deeper and broader, and well, why don't you come back and finish that senior year? It said 20-year-old me, and so I went to see one of the deans here, and uh, if he'd laughed at me, I, I was that fragile, I think it would have gone nowhere, but he turned out to be an Episcopal priest. We talked for about three hours. We figured out how to deal with the fact that tuition had changed a little bit in the interim. And uh, so in 91, I came back, finished my senior year, wrote a senior thesis in history and government, and graduated class of 64-92. Mm-hmm. My, my 81-year-old mother got to come and finally see her son become a college graduate. Uh, but I got hooked and then went on and did a master's and Ph.D. here. And, and while doing that, I was asked to teach a course on uh, organizing at the Kennedy School. And that turned out to be a real gift because it was a way to integrate my life experience and social science in a conversation with a rising generation. And uh, I think the teaching was probably the core context for my learning because it was like having a conversation with the future every time I go to class. And so uh, since 2000, I've been on the faculty here when I finished up the Ph.D. and I teach organizing and uh, public narrative and moral leadership and uh, have then, you know, had the privilege of being able to do that work in the world of practice as well as in the world of research and uh, and teaching, uh, as you mentioned, with the Obama campaign and other other activities in a world that seems once again hungry for change. Exactly. That's the voice of a Marshall Gans. I'm Terrence McNally. As you heard, Marshall is a lecturer in public policy at Harvard. He uh, helped devise the grassroots organizing model for Obama's 2008 campaign. He's the author of Why David Sometimes Wins, Leadership, Organization, and Strategy in the California Farm Worker Movement. We're going to talk about Obama 08, Obama 2012, Occupy uh, 99%, and and, and also because it is such an essential part of uh, Marshall Gans's organizing strategy, we're going to talk about story and narrative and uh, their power and, and utility. Uh, in changing uh, your own life as well as uh, the life of your society. This is Free Forum. You can visit me anytime at terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, terrencemcnally.net, or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website, and you can learn more about the show there, guests, podcasts, transcripts, articles, and so on. You can listen to podcasts there or at iTunes. You can sign up there or at iTunes to have it delivered to you weekly. You can sign up on the site or by emailing me at T-E-McNally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at Mac.com to get a weekly announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and uh, some background on the issues. So, um, by the way, when, when I first said, uh, when you mentioned how you went to Harvard to get as far away as you could from Bakersfield, and I said, who knew you'd end up back there? I was referring to Bakersfield. So, I mean, you've sort of done that twice in your life. You leave Bakersfield and end up back there uh, working with the farm workers, not necessarily in Bakersfield, but in that part of California for 16 years. And then, as we, as we talked about, go back to Harvard and end up there. That's right. Um, so you just can't get away from yourself. Um, yeah, I guess so. It's a good point. Uh, what, what you you said some of the lessons you learned um, in in your work in Mississippi. Uh, what were some of the lessons you learned in your long term work with the uh, farm workers? Well, in a sense, the same sort of basic lessons. I think that that you know when when you see uh, uh, when you see such 
such inequality as was the case in the South or or the case in uh, in um, uh, in California. You you have to ask why, because you realize very quickly that you know bringing some medical supplies or a few books or it's not going to really change anything because there's a deeper inequality that's driving all those differences in healthcare, housing, education, all the rest of them. And, you know, what I learned in both places was that underlying both of them is an inequality in power, that, that in the case of the South, lack of voting rights, lack of union rights, and, you know, the whole daily experience of subordination the, that went on between blacks and whites. I mean, I'd, I'd never had the experience of going to someone twice my age who would stand up, offer me his chair, call me Mr., not list, look me in the eye, and, and introduce himself with his first name because he was black and I was white, and that went on thousands of times a day. So you put that stuff together, and you get a pretty good explanation of how the white community could sustain that system, even though blacks tried to challenge it. And and so the the question then it poses is, how, how, do, what, how, do, you, how do you shift something like that? And the same question in California uh, with the farm workers. So some people think, well, you go and you try to address those with power and ask those with power to fix it. But, of course, that leads to testify at our committee, do a little research, do this, do that. You're very nice people, but nothing changes. And so what we learned was that unless people with the problem could become authors of the change, which is what I was saying before, the change wouldn't be real. And what that... But it seems like a paradox because we said the problem is powerlessness, and so how do they become authors of change? We learned there's a difference between resources and power, and that while communities lack power, they may not lack resources. In the case of the Montgomery bus boycott, a great example, the start of the civil rights movement, uh, it turns out that uh, uh, people had a resource. Uh, first, they thought they were going to do it through litigation, but then they realized they had a, fee, a resource that, if used collectively, could turn into power, and that was their feet. And if they walked to work instead of riding the bus, then the bus company would become dependent on them instead of the other way around. And it's that basic insight that, that how communities that are relatively powerless can find the resourcefulness to translate their resources into power that, for me, is at the heart of what organizing is all about. And it was the same deal with the farm workers when when uh, you know farm workers went on strike and and they were replaced by strike breakers uh what to do about that well it turned out that farm workers could not only be on picket lines they could become organizers go to the cities they could organize churches and unions and students to join them in boycotting the products of the grape growers the grapes uh and through that uh, develop the economic power necessary to change things and the last lesson was that that doesn't happen just happen that it takes, um, you know, it takes skilled leadership to make it happen. Um, and that's what organizing is about, is developing that leadership. Because uh, in the South, I mean, Dr. King didn't come out of the womb knowing how to organize. I mean, he was raised by a Baptist preacher. He, he, he uh, you know, and like rabbis, Baptist preachers have to, you know, they have to organize their congregations or they're out of a job. And so it's a great organizing school. But the black church in the South trained uh so many people, as did the Sleeping Car Porters Union, as did the Black Fraternals in Basics of Leadership. And, of course, with the farm workers, the whole tradition of uh, Alinsky, Fred Ross, the community service organization, the 10 years of work Caesar did out there before ever starting the farm workers became a leadership school for that as well. So what I took from it was this relationship between developing leadership 
building community and developing power that it takes to create change and learn the same lessons over and over and over again with, with the uh, with the farm workers. Very good. That's the voice of Marshall Gans, as you can hear, uh, an organizer since the mid-60s, um, as well as a teacher of organizing now at uh, the Har- Harvard's Kennedy School. Um, and we're talking about, you know, those uh, 50 years and this very year as well during this hour. You, you, I, I saw one place you defined strategy, and I thought this was so, um, so succinct, how we turn what we have into what we need to get what we want. Yep, that about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're exa- you just gave an example with the uh, farm workers. Um, do you, I mean, basically, that sentence is is kind of what it is over and over again, and you just got to figure out what are the elements, what do we have, how do we turn that into what we need to get what we want? That's the way I look at it. I mean, you know, it, it's it's sort of rooted in an understanding that that power is a relationship. It's not a thing, and and so it's it's a relationship of influence that emerges from uh, interest and resources, and so. You know, if if your need for my resources is greater than my need for your resources, that gives me some power over you. That gives me the capacity to influence you. And so the question is sort of paying attention to where those points of interdependence are. This this really goes back to Gandhi's understanding of how power worked when he realized that that any system rests on the cooperation of those whom it exploits as well as those who are benefiting from it. But the, the challenge, it can often be very costly to withdraw from the system. And, uh, you know, that's what his movement was all about. That's what sort of nonviolence is about. And so once you get that it's all about interdependence, then, uh, then it gives you a lot of room to, to, to bring the other thing Gandhi always talks about was creativity, because you're David, you're not Goliath. So you have to figure out how to, how to compensate for those resources with resourcefulness. And that's, where creativity comes in. But I think that's that's basically what it comes down to. Yeah, and another place you said strategic capacity consists of three elements, motivation, access to relevant knowledge, and deliberations that lead to new learning. And then you said very clearly, this is, this is the lesson of um, why David sometimes wins, that that's why Chavez's efforts in the farm workers could work because they actually had more access to those three elements than those in power. Yes, and, and it's so clear in that case because two other powerful unions were trying to organize farm workers at the same time, the Teamsters and the AFL-CIO. They had tons of money and professional staff, and they, you know, they fell on their faces uh, where it was the, you know, the agile and wily but well-rooted and imaginative UFW that had success where others had failed. And, you know, what I realized when I was working on this, somebody said, oh, that's David and Goliath. And when I went back and actually read the story in detail, it turns out that that theory is right there embedded in that story. I mean, you know, uh, David uh, David takes on the fight not because he's had a feasibility study on defeating <laughs> giants at McKinsey. He, he, he takes on the fight because he's outraged at the injustice, and everybody else tells him to shut up and not make trouble. But but and even though he's not equipped, and once he makes that commitment, he goes to the king and says, I'll fight, and, and the king laughs at him and says, you're not qualified. And finally, he persuades him to let him fight if, if the king says, you've got to take my sword, shield, and, and helmet. 
David tries it. He puts them on, but he can't move. <laughs> and, and, and that's when he looks down at his feet and notices these five smooth stones. He says, wait a second. I'm a shepherd, not a, not a soldier. As a shepherd, I knew how to protect my flock from the wolf and the bears with a stone and a sling. Maybe Goliath's just another wolf or bear. That's when he takes off the armor, picks up the stones, goes to face Goliath. Goliath laughs at him. And in the middle of the third laugh, you know, stone in the middle of the forehead into <laughs> Goliath. And that's not a story about nonviolence, but it is a story about resourcefulness. And it's a story and about it. about the depth of motivation in, in, in all of the cases we've talked about, whether it's the, right. the, the blacks in Mississippi, the farm workers in California, or David, their motivation... Uh, is an enormous fuel, and then with the farm workers, as with the the, the blacks, th- there's a relevant knowledge that the farm workers had that the teamsters didn't, that the authorities right. didn't, and and so it does. It, it what I like about it is it it it, it bodes well. Then it it it, it answers you know uh, resignation or intimidation with possibility. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it does, and I think. It's that sense of possibility. Without that, I think we're goners. And, and it, Maimonides, the, the Jewish philosopher of the 12th century, he had a definition of hope as being belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. Let me say it again. That, that, that being a realist is to recognize that the world is not only the, the world of the probable, but also of the possible. A black man can be elected president of the United States. David can be. Doesn't happen a lot. Could happen. Right. And it's that sense of possibility that kindles hope and uh, and you know the the aspiration to challenge the status quo. I'm Terrence McNally. That's the voice of Marshall Gans, lecturer in public policy at Harvard. Uh, Gans helped devise the grassroots organizing model for uh, Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. And he's the author of Why David Sometimes Wins, Leadership, Organization, and Strategy in the California Farm Worker Movement. This is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2012 conversation with Marshall Gans, longtime political and labor organizer, now teaching at Harvard, about public narrative, an organizing tool he's developed and used successfully for over 50 years. You can learn more at marshallgans.com. Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, Gans, G-A-N-Z, all one word, MarshallGans.com. We were just talking about hope. Let's talk about Obama in 2008. Um, How did you get involved? How did that happen? Well, I got it. It's funny. I I got involved. I sort of, when I came back, I sort of sworn off electoral politics for a while. But I got back involved in 2004, mainly through my students who were uh, involved in Howard Dean's campaign up in New Hampshire. And uh, one of the uh, lead organizers, or the campaign manager up there, a woman named Karen Hicks, um, they were involved in very traditional kind of uh, the marketing, like canvassing, marketing, voter identification, not doing any organizing. And, you know, Dean did a lot of imaginative stuff on the Internet, but it wasn't happening in the field. And she said, she came down and said, well, what if we introduce these folks to organizing? And so we went up and did a workshop with them on on, you know, the ways we'd learn to organize. I'd learned to organize in the farm workers. And in California in the 80s, we'd, we'd taken a lot of those tools into electoral politics out there in Alan Cranston's campaign or Nancy Pelosi's campaign. or fi- I mean, there was a lot of people came out of the farm workers that knew how to, learned how to do that stuff. And so, it, but what happened was then a core of young people got equipped in the, the craft of storytelling and house meetings and relationship building and all that stuff in a modern context. 
and uh, built a hell of a program in New Hampshire, even though it didn't overcome the scream uh, of Dean. It was able to, you know, uh, become uh, turn the state blue in the election that year. And out of that came a core of young people that were central to the organizing in the Obama campaign. And so that was sort of the starting point uh, for for that work, uh, and was was because the Obama people knew they had to have capacity at the base to win those primaries. Uh, they got some experienced people to do Iowa, and the people that I had worked with did South Carolina, and uh, they tried a different approach in New Hampshire and in Nevada, and those didn't work, and Iowa and South Carolina did work, and so. Guess what? Organizing could make a difference in winning elections. Yeah, and, one... uh, and so the other piece was that there were people all over the country that wanted to help that weren't engaged, and in particular California. And so I was asked to figure out how we could design a way to organize those people so that they could, you know, contribute to the campaign. And that led to the first Camp Obama that we did in Burbank um, in July of 2007 with a woman named Buffy Wicks, who was. A California person. We had a couple hundred people and um, about 150 people in a in a big union uh, hall, IATSE Union Hall out in Burbank. And we found that we could put together a two and a half day program to introduce them to the five basic organizing practices of relationship building, storytelling, strategizing, action, and structure to launch them as leadership teams by the by the end of the two and a half days who could go out there and begin to do the work of the campaign in a structured way, amplified with the access to information provided through the Internet. And uh, we did a similar workshop up in, uh, up in San Francisco, launched a couple hundred teams over those two weekends, and then that sort of took off and became the model for the campaign by 2008. And it, it, it brought a very different element to the whole grassroots component of the campaign, which was rooted in developing local leadership, uh, empowering people to take responsibility, equipping people, enabling people to see that they had in their own life experience the resources they needed, namely their own narratives and relationships to do the work. It didn't have to become policy wonks. Uh, and so it's this kind of discovery when you go thinking you have a deficit and you leave realizing you have an asset. It's very empowering. And And one of the definitions of a social movement is that it empowers people individually, even as they organize to exercise power on the world around them. It's it's this connection of individual and collective and and institutional change that's at the heart of what what's so powerful about movements. And that was evident in that in that 2007-2008 Obama campaign, just as as it had been in others. Yeah, in other words, one of the things that you make clear over and over again is is what you just said is that a social movement. Um, will and and really is intended to change not only the body you may be uh, focused on but all of those who participate as well exactly and that's what that's what's so powerful about it and uh and that's that's what you saw on wall street i mean the people you know it's just so it was so interesting you know that so sort of satisfying in a way that you know the 99% 1% didn't come out of some message factory in washington but it came out of a bunch of people putting their bodies in a place they didn't belong, as people have done throughout history when they wanted to make change. And there's something about the reality of it um, 
that you know grounds it, uh, and people can tell the difference between what's real and what's uh, what's phony. Right, and we're we're right away at the halfway point. So let me uh, tell people again. I'm Terrence McNally. The show is Free Forum, and my guest today is Marshall Gans, and we're talking about uh, organizing. We're talking about social movements. We're talking about the power of story and narrative. And uh, as you've heard, if you've been listening, uh, we're, we, we, we've found examples from uh, the Mississippi uh, work in the mid-60s to Occupy Wall Street uh, this very year. Um, We'll, we'll return to Occupy uh, a little later. I do want to uh, talk just a little bit about the, as I said in my introduction, Obama, uh, I, I, first of all, question, were, was the campaign surprised by how powerful and how critical um, that grassroots uh, sort of horizontal movement, and, and I say horizontal because as you say, it depended more on relationships than expertise or power, but were they surprised by how effective and how important that turned out to be? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I think they were sort of blown away by it. I mean, they had a glimpse of the power of the Internet from, uh, from the Dean campaign. Right. Uh, but, you know, they didn't get the organizing stuff, uh, as was evident in, uh, in New Hampshire, uh, where they ran a very traditional campaign. Uh, I think uh, Iowa and especially South Carolina really blew them away, uh, you know, because, you know, good old grassroots house meeting organizing means you come in under the radar and you don't need to go through institutional leaders. You build from the bottom up. I mean, that whole approach was uh, formed actually there in L.A. I mean, it was it was Fred Ross organizing the community service organization in East L.A. in the late 1940s that Reject Alinsky's traditional approach. Saul Alinsky, community organizer, was you organized organizations in 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 communities like East LA, and uh, Fred Ross observed that there weren't a lot, um, and but there were kinship networks and relational networks. And so, if you did your organizing based on that, then you could create something that would appear almost from nothing. And that's how the CSO was organized. It's how the Farmworkers was organized. And that's how Obama was organized in South Carolina, and it sort of like came from nowhere. And, and so what that so, does is, 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 I mean, to some extent, I was thinking about the David Goliath. I mean, certainly the Clinton campaign, the Clinton machine, the Clinton power was assumed to be the Goliath. And, and, and as you <laughs> say, and what we've seen, just looking at the Republican primaries, is because everything seems to be generated, uh, or so much power seems to be generated by the super PACs and the money, um, Romney does see who his adversary is and then attacks him with, you know, whereas in some sense what you're saying is at least in the early states, o- Obama was always under the radar and thus su- you, you, it makes it harder for Goliath to knock you over. Yeah, and it's also Caesar, Caesar Chavez used to say, he used to say power makes you stupid. And what he meant was <laughs> that if you're used to relying on an overwhelming preponderance of military, economic, or political might, you stop thinking. Yeah. And, and that's what creates opportunities for the Davids uh, of the world uh, to make their inroads. Now, and and there's there's a surprising amount of truth to that. Yeah. Now I want to go after the after uh, as I as I mentioned before. Once Obama is elected, he really jettisons all of that. Yeah. And and you've written about that, but I want you to 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 just you know tell us a little bit about a how you found out that it was being cut out and, 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 and what you think it meant 
and why you think it happened and what the effects were. Well, that's a big uh, that's a big topic. I mean, I think that one thing is important to realize that the whole the whole uh, grassroots organizing thing it really didn't come from the top. It was something the campaign took advantage of, uh, but it wasn't really anything they ever really understood at the top. And you know, I mean, Barack did have experience as a community organizer. It was very limited, and it sure didn't bring the depth of understanding of how you build movements and all the rest. And so it was sort of demonstrated by the organizers in the field how powerful this could be. Well, so so the election is won. Then the big question is, what do we do with this? Um, and, uh, you know, on the one hand, there was this whole mobilized electorate out there that was ready to go. And it, um, just for numbers, it was like a million and a half people played active roles yeah. in local teams. I mean, that's a lot of yeah. people. Yeah, and I mean, it wasn't just a list. You know, it wasn't just a, a computer list or an email list. These were people actively organized, had leadership roles and responsibilities in their communities, and they were ready to go. And, uh, you know, the, the Obama folks uh, blinked. I think they were afraid of it. I think that, that you know, it's hard to know everything that goes into these things, but it, it seems like um, sort of things shifted very much to being a question of control. H- how can we control rather than how can we empower? And, and it's an understandable reaction if you lack experience and certainly if you don't understand executive leadership and, and the whole dynamics of how change works. I mean, and this is what I find really remarkable because, you know, we've never seen deep reform occur in this country that hasn't been this, the, the sound of two hands clapping uh, inside people and very powerful outside people. I mean, we got legislation in California <coughs> for farm workers because we had a movement, and we also had Jerry Brown as a governor. And without both pieces, it's hard to imagine how it could have happened. Civil rights movement, same kind of thing. Now, so, you know, you can speculate why, but they certainly decided they didn't need that. They didn't want that. And I think they were afraid they couldn't control it. And so they domesticated it, put it in the DNC, uh, and sort of pulled its teeth. Um, now, at the same time, the, the other piece was that the sort of progressive coalitions like on health care, on, uh, on uh, environment, on immigration reform, and on labor reform were very well organized in Washington. There were these tables organized more than I had ever seen. But they got the message from the Obama folks not to rock the boat. They would take care of it, and they bought it. And I think people confused access with power and sort of, you get to go to the White House, wow, and uh, <laughs> Jim Messina comes and meets with you, and that's terrific. That's great, but what's really happening was nothing. And the result was a huge vacuum. Uh, and, uh, you know, at, a, at the very moment that the country was, was so anxious for leadership, I mean, the economy had gone south. Right. And, and so, so nothing was coming from Obama. The liberal groups were inactive. And the old campaign apparatus had been put to sleep, and into that comes what? Well, when you don't have an active politics of hopes, you get a politics of fear, and that was the Tea Party. Right. As you point out, in other words, anxiety, when you talk about story, anxiety is, is a key component of a story, and it leads to, uh, it leads to action and so on. And, and what you say is that 
this was not a normal election. This was an election in a time of fear, in a time of anxiety with the economy. Uh, right. and, and so that was going to go somewhere. It doesn't just it doesn't just sit. And, and that vacuum was filled, as you say, by by the Tea Party um, and the Republicans. And the I mean, after the 2010 election, uh, Obama would say uh, the the uh, the uh, America has shifted or, or the American people have spoken. And what I always felt was, wait, no, no, America hasn't changed. It's just the electorate changed. Instead of all those people you mobilized in 2008, they sat home and all that changed was, I mean, the number of young people who voted in 2008 versus who voted in 2010, the difference only was who went to the polls. That's exactly what happened. And I mean, you know, people treat like sort of say, well, it's inevitable that, you know, somebody gets elected. They're not, well, not so, you know, if you understand I mean, American politics has always been, it's kind of like I was saying, our political institutions, after all, as designed by the founders, they were really designed to inhibit change. They were afraid of, of, of uh, majoritarian democracy. And so they created all these checks and balances, made it so hard to use government as a mechanism of change. But, but Americans always, Americans needed to make change, and so what they hit upon was the social movement, modeled more on the Great Awakening of the 1830s and 40s than anything else. And so we have this wave of social movements that interact with political parties that transform the parties and eventually public policy. And that's exactly what the conservative movement did over the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. It's exactly. also what the civil rights movement did and the labor movement did and so forth. And so we were in a movement moment here. Yeah, people were and, people were people were mobilized. People I mean they yeah. weren't just they weren't just energized, they were mobilized and they were left yeah. hanging. Um, you say one thing. You say is that uh, Obama abandoned the transformational model of his presidential campaign for a transactional model of governing. Yeah, and and yeah. and I, I I mean it really is clear. He went from being someone who who energizes and is and and has a prophetic. Uh, uh, I mean, Cornell West has said this quite a bit. You know, had a, had a prophetic. Uh, cast to the election campaign, and and then the, all of that was gone, and now we were into negotiation, compromise, and so on. Again, I'm speaking with Marshall Gans, lecturer in public policy at Harvard. He helped devise the grassroots organizing model for Obama's 2008 campaign, and uh, now teaches organizing uh, uh, on a on a regular basis. Yes, well, it's very hard to 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 you know, to fully uh, understand uh, the nature of that shift, because it wasn't only a shift from transformation to transaction, but to a passivity uh, of leadership that was just remarkable. Uh, and, you know, I, there is a kind of wish, I think, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't know what the psychology is behind this, but there seems to be a kind of conflict aversion uh, or a wish that, well, Really, if we all just talk to each other, sort of Rodney King theory of politics, you know, we can all just talk to each other, and then we'll understand each other, and we'll see that we really have more in common. That's not how democracy works. Democracy is a system of contention. I mean, it's designed that way. It's based on holding power accountable through competitive elections, competitive parties that, that pose challenging alternate positions and compete for electoral support. It's all about contention. And, and if you back away from that, and the other side gets it, and your side doesn't, you're done for. 
And that's what happens. Yeah, and I think I mean, I, I'll bet even for, for you as well as for me and, and, and so many others, when it happened once, let's say, on the stimulus package, you go, wow, he tried to negotiate, uh, gave away uh, this, that, turned a third of it into tax cuts, gave away $40 billion to the states, and got not a single vote. Boy, that won't happen again. And then he goes again and again. And I think it was, it was the, the commitment that to, to playing the patsy that, that was so surprising. You, you, have, you have written, he confused bipartisanship in the electorate with bipartisanship in Congress. And while he, while we want that, we're America that isn't red or blue. Congress is red and blue. He sure is. <laughs> Let's not kid so ourselves. The, I mean, to his great credit, and, and he actually writes about this in uh, in his second book, right? I mean, he had a recognition of American political culture as being composed of many different currents, and there is a current of uh, you know uh, individualism and competitiveness and aggressiveness, and there's also a component. Of, of cooperation and inclusion and equality, and he built his campaign around that second set of values. That's that's sort of what enabled so many people to engage, and it was like you know it was like the return of a chord that hadn't been heard yeah uh, exactly you know, for years, and then uh, and then stepped away from it, um, leaving it hanging, um, and you know but this wish for. This sort of wish for some sort of post-partisan yeah. Rodney King approach to politics is very deep, uh, and and I think a lot of Democrats share it too. I, it's one reason. Although I, although Marshall, I think I think he's extreme. I've often said that while he seems non, he seems pragmatic in so many areas, he does seem ideological in this one area, in the in, in like a, a fundamentalist belief that that compromise will win. I mean, that compromise will, will work and that, that negotiation will work. Well, you know, it's funny because compromise and negotiation are tactics. You know, they're not goals. They're not in and of themselves right. valued. I mean, they're tactics for achieving valued ends or valued purposes. And I think that when, when they become, you know, when, when the means becomes confused with the ends, right, and sort of then compromise becomes an end in itself, well, then what are the ends? You lose sight. You get lost. It all becomes uh, some form of process. And I think if, if you find conflict difficult, uh, it's very convenient. And, you know, he was never that great in the debates with Hillary. That's I mean, right. yeah. he tended to be passive-aggressive or else, or else uh, passive. I mean, how, there's an article I assigned to my class that was published by the Harvard Business School, called How to Have a Good Fight. And it's great, because there are ways to have a good fight in arenas that require contention. And, and that's, how the, that's how this thing works. But if you're not constituted for yeah. that, then you hire, I guess, Rahm Emanuel to do your fighting for you. I mean, I... <laughs> You know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So let's. So what we what we were left with then is that he doesn't mobilize Obama and the administration doesn't mobilize all this uh, energy that's out there. There's anger and anxiety still out there. The economy doesn't get better quick. The stimulus package isn't big enough. Uh, things are bad. And so, as you say, in that moment, uh, the Tea Party arose. Let's skip that chapter and go to Occupy because we only have so much time. <laughs> okay. okay? All right. So Occupy, that arises, and you point out the difference between Tea Party and Occupy. Both arise out of the same anxiety, one motivated by fear, the other motivated by hope. Yeah. Yeah, that's my take. I mean, I think that, that the, the, 
the fact that Occupy was so successful in redefining the whole discourse, you know, is evidence that that it sort of holds up how the the um, I don't know, I'm not even sure the right word to use it, but the the fact that Democrats and Democratic leadership had been afraid to name the number one challenge, which is the growing economic inequality, the political inequality that goes with this, the ripoff by Wall Street, the whole shift in the economy. But they weren't talking about that. You know, it was like afraid to. And and so, but underneath, that's what was happening out there. And so along comes somebody that says, it's like, you know, naming it. Uh, it's kind of like uh, Thomas Kuhn writes about paradigm shifts. Yeah. He sort of says, anomalies accumulate to the old paradigm until somebody comes along and has and has a way to explain them and then boom it clicks yeah then they're not anomalies then there's a new paradigm yeah then there's a new paradigm exactly and and i and see i think what what uh because uh, of a lack of courage uh more than a lack of knowledge our democratic political leadership was not calling it what it was and so the Occupy people called it what it was. And wow, did that resonate. Yeah, and, 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 yeah and all those people who uh, – I've done a few shows on Occupy, and I've certainly talked about it plenty with folks. And, and it seems that whatever else everyone knows, the conversation has changed, and that's, that's a powerful thing. Let me ask you this. Where do you think the movement needs to do a better job right now? How would you advise uh, Occupy 99% on how to translate – the, 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 the small pockets of activism all around the country, all the local encampments or encampments translated into, if, even if they're not camping now, local movements into something national that will result in significant change? Well, I, I think that, that the, a lot of the folks involved in the Occupy movement are struggling with this right now, of, of how to create a structure that enables them to develop strategy that's as powerful as their story was. I mean... It's kind of like, you know, when you have a very powerful story, you also need a very powerful strategy to go with it uh, and not get stuck on a single tactic. And to develop powerful strategy, you need venues in which to do that. I mean, it, it, places where people are engaged with one another, you know, figuring out, because strategy is purposeful, it's intentional. And we know, you know, social movements are sort of occur at the intersection of intention and opportunity. I mean... You know, they had a police day demonstration in Tahrir Square every year. Right. But the, the April 6th movement organized, but it wasn't until Tunisia happened and Bin Ali took off that it turned into, it exploded. And, wow, they really had something on their hands. And so it's always both, but, but you need the intentionality piece. And I think that's what they're struggling with right now is how to create that venue and that space in which they can be much more proactive over the course of the coming year. Now, the election is going to take, you know, a lot of energy. And, you know, I think that the shift Obama's made in the last few months, ever since the Teddy Roosevelt speech, uh, is positive. I think it's very good. I thought the State of the Union was more real than anything I'd heard in quite a while, because it actually it actually named some of the problems, and it pointed to some sort of action the president could take that wasn't just contingent on Congress. I mean, it's as if that office had no power. It had a hell of a lot of power. But I think that's all positive. But now the question is, how does the movement sustain the heat? Uh, how does it translate not only into electoral success, but how does it uh, take the fight to the, you know, to, to the people responsible 
which continue to be the banks and and the concentrations of financial wealth. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I I do think that, you know, it'd be pretty presumptuous to think you did. But yeah, yeah. It's clear that there are some pieces, and one of the pieces is strategic venues. One of the pieces is recognizing the nature of the problem and trying a lot of things. And so I think we're going to see a lot of stuff tried over the next year to uh, to sustain this, uh, to try to sustain this momentum. There's people talking about, you know, uh, uh, Occupy Spring or whatever it is, you know. Uh, May Day, a Day of we'll Action, see, and, and but well, certainly... We'll see, what, we'll see what comes of it. We do know that, you know, civil disobedience has traditionally played a critical role in serious reform. Um, you know, and... and uh, I don't know. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of that in in recent times. Uh, it is one way in which people can hold a system accountable is withdrawing their cooperation in different forms. I don't know if that's where it goes. Yeah. Let yeah, me. Let, you 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 said something. You said something which I myself have have been saying, which is it isn't just that we have an occupied ninety nine percent movement. It's that we also have an election year. And, and, and the question that, that I've been asking is that gap that exists, that gap that the people feel between themselves and politics, and I think this yeah. goes, you know, this goes across the board. You know yeah. that, that politics is not about you. It's about people with big money and it's about TV ads and the gap between people and their government, which seems to, you know, maybe be less universal, but still there. I, I, my question is, how will we occupy that gap in an election year? And, and, and I, I don't profess to answer, but I think that's that's a big question. I, I agree with you. I mean, I uh, and I wish you know <laughs> we had a if we had a you know some kind of silver. But I, mean, I should say we do have a good candidate here in Massachusetts. We have a very good mm-hmm, candidate. Mm-hmm. Here. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren, Warren you're talking is, about, yeah. is an excellent uh, because she. She's got the courage, and she's got the analysis, and she's got the moral understanding, and uh, and she's got the credibility. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she's got guts. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, those have been kind of in short supply, and she can talk to people too. I mean, uh, so you know, that's fine for here in Massachusetts, but uh, nationally, I think uh, the question, as you just posted, I think uh, is the question. Yeah, um, let's let's on. oh. Yeah, I mean, so we're still... Now, by the way, I, I do think that the, there's, there is some... I am getting a sense of some clarity about the the, the ends. Um, I'm just going to read something I got in the last couple of days from Amped Status, David DeGraw, um, who was one of the people who first coined the 99%, and he basically says, no matter what your issues of concern are, healthcare, education, foreclosures, unemployment, the environment, war, debt, and so on, when you get to the root of that particular problem, it all comes down to the system of political bribery. And overturning Citizens United, changing campaign finance, changing lobbying, that sort of thing does seem to be a shift because when you start and you say we're occupying Wall Street, what in fact that says is we're occupying the intersection of Wall Street and the Beltway. And, and And it seems to me that is where, that does seem to be where the national Occupy 99% attention is going. Now we just have to see how it organizes. What I want to do in the last five minutes we got here, Marshall, is talk about story and narrative. Um, you say, you say, and maybe if, if you're up for it, we can do one where we talk about nothing but that. But what you say that basically um, movements have to tell three stories, and those three stories are. 
Well, it, it's sort of the idea that, that, okay, so narrative is how we learn to make choices in the face of uncertainty. It's how we learn to access the moral or emotional resources to make choices, because that's, that's what stories are constructed about. So it's kind of a basic category. It's why families and cultures and religions all teach how, how to act in the world, how to make choices through narrative. So it's a basic form of, of understanding ourselves in the world. Uh, and uh, in terms of leadership, uh, it, it seems to, the role of narrative seems to be around these three points, uh, these three poles. And it's not like something new. I, I mean, the first time I found this, it was in uh, Moses' conversation with God at the burning bush, where, <laughs> where you know, uh, God says, you got to go free your people. Moses says, first, why me? Mm-hmm. And then he says, well, wait a second, who are you? And then thirdly, he says, can't this wait a while? And, 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 you know, the other formulation is Hillel's three questions. And the first century Jerusalem scholar, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am for myself alone, what am I? If not now, when? There's a linking of self, other, and action that's at the heart of, of leadership, it seems to me, and of moral, uh, and actually of moral choice in the world. And so the, 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 the public narrative idea is that it is a way of linking those three. Uh, a story of why I've been called, stories of why we are called to a common purpose, and stories of the challenge to that purpose that requires action now. And what we found is that that offering people that framework, uh, because it's not like applying a theory, it's much more a roadmap, it's much more pointing to kind of uh, a structure underneath things. When you offer people that framework, it enables them to do what we do naturally with greater intentionality. See, I think a lot of what we do in organizing, relationships, stories, and strategy, we do, we're hardwired for. But if we become aware of the structure of it, then we can be much more purposeful in the way we do it. And I think that's what we do in this public narrative work is equip people with a kind of transparency that enables them to exercise much more agency. Because that's, for me, that's the heart of the matter is, how do you access agency in yourself, inspire it in others, so that you can act mindfully and purposefully in the face of challenge, threat, and danger, which is what narrative is a response to. And uh, so the, the interdependence of those three pieces turns out to be something that, I don't know, I've, you know, I, before Christmas I was doing a workshop, a first workshop in Beijing with NGO leaders over there. Uh, We've done work in, in Jordan, in the Middle East, in, in that culture. And these three elements always seem to be present, and people people are able to then use this to mine their own cultural resources and their own life experience for um, the capacity to move themselves and others into action. Yeah, so what you're saying is whether it's in Beijing, Mississippi, uh, Bakersfield, D.C., Massachusetts, on campus, off campus, in a labor situation, if I can tell you the story of, of myself the story of us and the story of why it is urgent that we do something now, um, th- then we've got a conversation that may lead to something. Yep, that's what I think. And then now the one thing I would also guess is that w- these stories pull people in, get people galvanized, but stories and narratives alone without wow. the craft of structure and leadership and strategy and tactics will not work. It's really you have to have both. Well, it's just like, I mean, the challenge of, uh, I mean, challenge comes to both, to the hands, the head, and the heart. I mean, to the hands, it's like, how do I get the skills I need? To the head, it's how do I use my resources 
in a strategic way. And to the heart, it's how do I find the courage. Story can address the heart part, but but the strategic part and the, and the action part are critical. Uh, I mean, the whole idea is is to exercise, to access and transform power. That's what it's all about. And so, you know, it's a little tricky, all the emphasis on story, because it's only a piece of it. That's right. It opens um, the door. It engages, and then it's what we do with it. i got to let it go at that. The Marshall right. Gans is at Harvard's Kennedy School. His book is Why David Sometimes Wins. Is there a website that you direct people to to learn more about your work? Well, they can go to my website at the Kennedy School. Uh, yeah, just go to Harvard Kennedy School and put in Marshall Gans, G-A-N-Z. Um, thank you so much, Marshall. And, and as I say, I, I would love to do it again sometime and emphasize not the politics and so on, but just the story and the narrative work. You great, can listen to this. Talking with you. Great for this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work. Go to TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E, M-C-N-A-L-L-Y dot net or a world that just might work dot com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement of guests and issues, plus usually links to 10 to 15 articles to flesh out the conversation, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally at mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Free Forum podcast on Apple Podcasts and all those other podcast sites. You can find years of podcasts at my site and at those. Listen anytime, anywhere. Archives include Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Kiana Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners. Please share this podcast widely. Finally, thank you to Marshall Gans. Keep up the good work. Hi, it's radio veteran Nicole Sandler. Sadly, the radio we all grew up listening to no longer exists. The industry in which I worked for 40 years has been decimated. I turned up the radio. I can't hear it. Thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, a handful of giant corporations control what you hear on the so-called public airwaves all across the nation. But times have changed. Turn it up, turn it up, a little bit higher. Radio! It's the 21st century, and at Progressive Voices, we're reclaiming our time. Radio. Radio, your way. Progressive Voices, Stephanie Miller, Tom Hartman, Randy Rhodes, Nicole Sandler, Brad Friedman, Mike Malloy, and many more. Download the free Progressive Voices app, now powered by TuneIn. Speaking truth to power 24-7 on the Progressive Voices Network. If you want 24-7 access to everything progressive on the mobile internet, download the Progressive Voices app at ProgressiveVoices.com. The PV app is a one-stop shop that aggregates everything progressive. News, blogs, audio, video, opinion, then thoughtfully curates, prioritizes, and presents the progressive content. 
The purpose is to create a progressive media universe, an alternative to the one controlled by cable operators, radio station owners, and newspaper publishers. That's the PV app at ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.